Hey everybody, we are taking a break from new content this week to enjoy the long holiday weekend, but we will be back shortly. In the meantime, here's an old episode, but a good one, and we hope you enjoy it. Hey Katie. Hey Ben. So as you know, I am a web developer, Uh and today we're going to talk about putting me out of a job. Oh great. Kind of, (laughs) at least. (laughs) With machine learning. Yeah, you are listening to Linear Digressions. Now, I already know how this ends, so I'm not too afraid, but... <laughs> I mean, do you? Well... It's 2018. Actually, I mean, like, the long, there's a the long way long to go game, yet. <laughs> yeah, the long game, I have no idea. Um, I, I, do, I do think that eventually uh, front-end developers will be kind of out of a job. Uh, to, to give a little more context, and, and actually that sounds bleak, I should say... Um, uh, many for simple examples, and of course, as we go on, as as time rolls on, uh, the examples and the kinds of things that we can build with machine learning uh, will get more and more complex. On the face of it, what front-end web development is, is basically about taking design mocks that maybe a designer makes and converting that into code that can render in a web browser with HTML, CSS, and then JavaScript for interactivity. Now, if you go a little bit deeper, there are all kinds of other things that web, that front-end web developers tend to do. But we'll start with a simple case for now as a jumping-off point to talking about this. Sure, yeah. So from a machine learning standpoint, let me talk a little bit about what it is we're talking about here. So first of all, credit where credit is due. We're talking primarily about a blog post that's entitled Turning Design Mockups into Code with Deep Learning that was written by Emil Wallner in the last uh, week or so as we're recording this. And what Emil did was kind of an updated version of a concept that we've talked about on this program before, which was automatic image captioning, uh, the first time we talked about it anyway. So the idea of automatic image captioning is that we know that neural networks are pretty good at image recognition. Uh, We also know that different types of neural nets are pretty good at language generation. And the long and short of it is that if you took those two types of neural nets and kind of stuck them together with the right uh, configuration and the right orientation relative to each other, you can make a system whereby you send in a picture and then it spits out a caption. So picture goes in and text comes out. So that was what we have talked about before. Uh, I think that episode was a year or two ago now. And the update that we're making today, and that I'm so glad you're here to give me some perspective on, is that same system, but we're sending in images of, like you said, wireframes, which are layout designs that a designer might make of a website. Like we have a picture here and we have a text block there and there's some buttons and there's a bar at the top and whatever else. Uh, And then from that, it's going to generate not a description that's a caption, but it's going to generate the HTML or the CSS code that actually creates a website that looks like that. Yeah, and actually just uh, if you want to go back into the archives and look up those two episodes, uh, we talked about Neural Nets Part 1 and Neural Nets Part 2. I think, if I'm remembering right, Part 2 is the one that we talked about the putting together the uh, Stanford and the Google algorithms that turned out to be able to do automated picture captioning pretty well. Yeah, so in this example of uh, Emil Wallner's work, uh, turning design mockups into code, 
that sounds very lofty. It sounds like you're taking a design mock-up, uh, maybe something you might make in Photoshop or something like uh, Sketch, and you take that JPEG image and you turn it into the code that a front-end uh, web developer might write. And that's actually not exactly what's going on. Uh, the more interesting part is the image recognition, and the coding part is not freeform. Well, so Ben, as someone who is not actually that familiar with front-end code, and I'm guessing since we have a lot of data scientists and machine learning folks in the audience that I might not be alone here, can you roughly describe for me what front-end code looks like and what what you mean when you are drawing a little bit of a distinction here between front-end code and whatever it is that this algorithm is creating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, to answer the second part first, uh, the algorithm is creating front-end code, but not in a free-form way. So actually, to step back to the first question, uh, what does front-end code look like? So typically, you'll have HTML and you'll have CSS. HTML is the stuff that goes on the screen, and CSS is what the stuff looks like. So an example of that would be uh, you have a body tag within which you put everything. And then you have, um, and I'm oversimplifying and using incorrect terms just to kind of uh, summarize a little bit better, but you'll have a text tag, which would actually be a P tag for paragraph. Or you'll have heading tags like H1, H2, H3 for the different levels of headings. Oh, okay. So let's imagine. Let's imagine that what we have is uh, the New York Times website, like a newspaper website. Right. And so you might have. You'll have the text of the article. You'll have the uh, the title of the article, and maybe there's a subtitle. There might be uh, a picture of the author or a little mm-hmm. byline. There might be images that are throughout with captions. And so each of those are different structural elements that would show up in the HTML. And then the CSS might be the stuff that wraps around it that says, I don't know, what font you're going to use and right. that kind of That's thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like uh, just to kind of extend the example that you put out there, um, websites also have things like uh, buttons. They also have kind of larger sections that things might live within. So the New York Times, uh, actually, I haven't gone to the New York Times website for a while, but a generic newspaper site might have the article in the center, and then it might have a left bar where all of the navigation sits, and it might have a a right bar where maybe some ads are. Got it. Okay. Those are the structural elements. Those are the things that are in the HTML, uh, as well as the actual uh, content. So the structure and the actual content, which is the text of the article, and the names in the buttons and the names of the headers, etc. And also uh, kind of the, the semantic hierarchy, if you will. And if that sounds a little hand-wavy and fuzzy, you could just let that go. It doesn't, it, it's not all that important. Um, <clears throat> but you can think of it as the relationship between things as well, like what's nested inside of what. And then the CSS is the thing, like you said, that might set a typeface for all of the paragraph text, or it might set the color on the button. Got it. Okay. And so to return to a point that you made earlier that maybe I have a little bit more context to understand, you were drawing a distinction between front-end code and I think you said freeform code or something like that. So well, maybe so th- now... Well, those aren't actually terms, ah. but if I were sitting down and I were writing... If I were building a website, I could build it in any one of a bajillion different ways. But there are frameworks that kind of set more constrained, uh, I guess, practices on the way that you would organize a website. 
Uh, so kind so, of scaffolds that you would fill right. in. Okay. Right. So an example is there's something called Bootstrap. And Bootstrap is a CSS library which says, okay, you want to make a button. Here's how you make a button. You make uh, whatever element, you give it this class name and this class name and this class name. And then I, Bootstrap, the library, will go ahead and style all of these things for you. And if you're nesting things uh, in this way versus that way, Bootstrap will just kind of take care of uh, you know what what should happen will happen. And so let's say that you're a news reporter. You're not a front-end web developer. You're a news reporter. You might actually be required when you write your article to add a little bit of HTML in the article you're writing. Now you're not gonna you're not gonna want to just freehand some HTML. You're gonna want to follow some uh, specific guidelines on how you're gonna format that HTML. And that both serves to maintain consistency. Uh, between all of the different articles on the page uh, or on the website, but it also serves to reduce the amount that you need to learn and that you need to think. And that can be really beneficial in situations where you have people who aren't front-end web developers maintaining uh, a simple front-end website. I see. So I'm (laughs) remembering when I was back in college and I was taking computer science classes and the classes that I was taking, they had us actually working with kind of a C++ based language, but it was, it was a dummy language that was built on top of C++ that was very, Mm. uh, very basic set of functionality relative to like Python or C++ or Java. Uh, the idea being that they wanted us to think a lot about the structures of how we were building, uh, the, the code that we would write and not have too many bells and whistles and degrees of freedom, so to speak. And, so the way that one of my friends used to refer to this, I forget what the name of the of the toy language was, but he used to call it uh, Duplo block programming as opposed Duplo. to Lego. As opposed to Lego blocks, the idea with Legos being you build stuff out of them, but they're kind of small and and you can mm. make make very intricate things. And that with Duplo blocks, those are like Legos, but for toddlers, and so you can't choke. On, they're oh. like bigger, and you can't choke on them. Wait, wait those are called. I thought those were called Legos. Well, the Legos so the, are the little ones, the and then tiny Duplos. Legos are Legos. Yes. What? Okay. What? You didn't know this? <laughs> I did not know. I played with Legos, but apparently I, I didn't. I played with Duplos. Well, you Duplos. might have played with both, but any, anyway, yes. If you're a toddler, you're not going to choke on Duplos because they're the size of like. Well, they're much bigger. I don't know what size they're. They're yeah. a lot bigger than Legos. Let's put it that way. They're they're big enough that if you step on them with a bare foot, it's going to hurt more than if you step on a little Lego. Well, I don't I know. I guess it Legos depends on the orientation lot. of the Lego. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but the point is that uh, there's not exactly limited functionality in this case, but some of the some of the details, let's say, have already been taken care of for you. Right. And so you're kind of you're filling in the blank spaces here, but. Uh, for example, the concept that you could get everything lined up nicely, or that if you had a table, the table was already formatted, or that your button looks decent, or any of these, your text is well-centered, that's kind yeah. of already taken care of by the fact that you're doing all this work in, in Bootstrap. Yeah, and so I think the Duplo example, it's 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 hard for me to get used to saying Duplo instead of Lego, <laughs> but I think the... The uh, Duplo example is a really good one because that's basically what Bootstrap allows you to do. Um, Bootstrap, that CSS library, the styling library, it says, here's how you write HTML uh, for this library, and then the library will style it for you. And actually, if you go onto GitHub and you look at Emil Wallner's uh, code for this, 
there's actually, if you go, if you happen to go in there, it's in screenshot decode and Keras slash Floyd hub slash bootstrap slash compiler slash assets slash web DSL mapping dot JSON. I feel like this is that, something we should just put a link to on the website. Oh yeah. So there, if you didn't want, if you don't want to deal with what just happened there, click, 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 click. Yeah. Head to the website. We'll have a link that, directly to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you look at that file, it's got, um, 16 things in it. Uh, and it's just a mapping of uh, a name to some code. And I'll just read a couple of them. There's body, there's header, there's button active, button inactive, row, single, double, quadruple. Um, and these are all just bootstrap code, or sorry, uh, HTML code that follows the convention of bootstraps. So single is going to be a div or a box that is uh, the full width of the page. And double is going to be one that's half the width of the page. So you can put them side by side and you'll have two columns. Quadruple is four. There's button green, button orange, button red, big title, small title, and text. And so presumably what happens is his neural network uh, looks at the image, identifies certain uh, features, and then maps them to these names here, uh, single or button green or big title or text or whatever. And then it replaces what those uh, mappings are that are identified by the neural net with the actual code here. And then the content, whatever the content inside of that block is, gets put inside of the um, inside of the code. Got it. So that makes sense. Uh, so one of the things that I'm actually thinking about this blog post, one of the things I really liked about it is he kind of breaks the problem down into three stages of increasing complexity. So it starts with a simple neural net. Then he mixes in a little bit more complexity in the neural net and breaks apart the image recognition part from the capture or the code generation part. Last part was talking about the Twitter bootstrap. But in each one of these sections, he has a segment at the end where he talks about kind of some of the mistakes that he made and the things that he learned in the process of trying to get through that stage of the project. And so one of the things that I'm remembering specifically is he talks a lot about the vocabulary that he had to build in the process of making something that created good images. And so he had a little bit of a choice to make at some point. Are we going to build a vocabulary sort of piece by piece from the ground up and say, these are the elements that are important for us to have available to us when we're building out this, the, the output of the neural net, basically what's, what's the vocabulary that it's allowed to work with versus starting with the vocabulary that he was seeing from his training examples and maybe trying to trim away the stuff that he thought was extraneous, the, you know, kind of bottom up versus top down. Um, and saying that in particular, he found that the bottom-up vocabulary generation was a, a much more tractable way of dealing with this problem, but that I completely see where he's coming from, that that's not immediately, that wouldn't be immediately obvious to me anyway, and it sounds like it wasn't immediately obvious to him. Um, so this is just to speak a little bit to uh, the fact that he he's talking about kind of the role, how to do something like formulate the vocabulary if you need to use that as as a stepping stone. Um, but the larger point that I really liked about it, and the real reason that I wanted to say all this, is that I thought that was one of the coolest parts of the post in general, is sort of those asides at the end, where uh, he says some of the blind alleys that he wandered down, because uh, very often, blog posts, academic papers, presentations, you know, they kind of sweep aside some of that stuff and act like 
those experiments never happened, um, mm-hmm. which yeah. sometimes makes for a cleaner presentation, but cannot be can be a little bit less informative for you as a reader and, or listener or whatever. And I think is <laughs> also feels like a little bit unfair sometimes, at least to my feeling when I was especially when I'm trying to read this stuff that they say, yeah. oh, well, we just did this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, you're making it sound way easier than it actually was. Um, yeah. So that's what I mean by unfair. But I thought this was really great in that respect. That's a struggle that I've always uh, had, that I've often had as uh, when I was a budding web developer, is whenever you uh, whenever you read articles, like you said, the path is very straight when the reality is that it was probably very uh, difficult and there were a lot of blind alleys reading Stack Overflow posts gets you a little bit uh, further. Stack Overflow is the, the place you can go to when you have uh, when you have programming problems. Usually other people have found those same issues and people contribute answers and whatnot. It, that's not, that doesn't get you all the way there. You really still don't see all of the blind alleys that people go through or go down while trying to solve a problem. But yeah, like just as an aside, if you're listening to the show and you're a beginner to any field, just remember that because uh, otherwise it can get a little bit depressing because you feel like there's something wrong with you, but there just isn't. Absolutely. Totally. So as you can maybe tell from our discussion so far, this is a pretty meaty blog post and I, I don't think that we have the time to do it full justice, but helpfully there's a lot of visualizations and things like that that kind of help you along the way. And I found it to be a blog post that was not the most friendly thing in the world if this is your first introduction to neural nets, but the uh, all of the code is posted and available and you can run it yourself. And additionally, there's a lot of good links in the text of the blog post itself that refers you back to other references and earlier blog posts that this person has written. So it it doesn't come completely without any context here. Um, but I think it's a really good example, especially from a reproducibility standpoint. Um, the whole initiative here seems to be uh, to try to hand the reader as much as they would need to potentially reproduce the entire thing itself, uh, even going so far as to point you toward the system that the author used to run all the code. Uh, the code itself is available in GitHub, there's code snippets all throughout the blog post. And I think even a lot of the training data, maybe all of the training data is available. So in terms of really getting in there and getting your hands dirty, it's one of the, it's one of the cooler uh, resources that I've seen out there where someone is really, really walking you all the way through the problem from end to end. And I think that's really great. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.